And we're going to read uh, from chapter 26, verses 1 to 27. Uh, sorry, chapters 26 uh, through to chapter 27, verse 40. So it's quite a long reading. Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the, in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, to Gerhar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all the lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife? Why did you, not, why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you, you would have brought this guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in, in the, that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold. Because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Esk, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Then he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. 
Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, the personal servant, of, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me, since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day Isaac's servants came out. They came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, We found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day the name of the town has been Beersheba. When Esau was forty years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the days of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing and the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a, a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them, and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth parts of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Please sit up and eat some of your some of my games so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked the son, How did you find find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God give me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close up to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, My son, 
Bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him, and he kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of the earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of the game, so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac, tremble, Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Jacob, I have made him lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow, grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes you can tell who a child belongs to just by looking at their appearance, especially if you know the parents well. It's called the family likeness. It might be the shape of the face, uh, the distinctive eyes, the way the, the mouth curls when a person smiles. Like it or not, we often look like others in our family. In particular, we often look like our parents. And I say like it or not because it's not always a good thing. Sometimes it is. Some of us have parents who were dashing and glamorous in their day and in some cases still are. But others of us, well, um, it's a different story. We may be objective enough to admit that our mothers have always been unlikely to make the cut in a beauty pageant and that our fathers should consider themselves lucky to have got married at all. <clears throat> and it's one thing to be on the uh, receiving end of this kind of inheritance but it's another thing to realise that you bear the responsibility for passing on these genes to others. I hope my kids will grow up to have their mother's rather than their father's nose. Bearing the family likeness is not always a great thing. And predominantly that's the case with Abraham's family and the family of his son Isaac. And in the chapters that uh, we just read, this really emerges as a major theme, the way in which each progressive generation 
looks like the previous one. In Genesis chapter 26, the emphasis is on the similarities between Isaac and his father Abraham. Now, it's possible that the events of chapter 26 actually occurred before the birth of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, which we read about in chapter 25 last night. Genesis is not necessarily always arranged chronologically. It's possible that the writer chose to tell us about the events of chapter 26 at this point for a different reason, perhaps to underline this theme of family likeness, perhaps because he thought chapter 26 was important background for chapter 27. But irrespective of whether Jacob and Esau were born yet, Genesis 26 doesn't mention them. Instead, the focus is on their father, Isaac. And the chapter opens with news of a famine that leads Isaac to head to a place called Gerar. And Gerar was Philistine territory. And the king of that place was called Abimelech. Now, already we should be feeling a sense of deja vu. uh, Because back in Genesis chapter 12, if you've read it, Abraham responded to a famine by heading to Egypt. This chapter alerts us to the fact that there was an earlier famine in Abraham's time, there in the first verse of chapter 26. And then in chapter 20, we learnt that Abraham also stayed for a while in the land of Gerar and had dealings with a king called Abimelech. Now, it's possible that Abimelech was the title kings went by in that part of the world. So the Abimelech of chapter 20 might uh, not be the same as the Abimelech here in chapter 26, they might be different kings, but it's not inconceivable that they were the same king either. But what you really need to remember is that the two incidents in the life of Abraham that I just mentioned, his time in Egypt in chapter 12 and his time in Gerar in chapter 20, both had one very significant thing in common. In both cases, Abraham sought to pass off his wife as his sister. Now, just in case you haven't read the earlier chapters of Genesis, let me reassure you that you didn't just mishear me. Abraham tried to pass his wife Sarah off as his sister. In chapter 12, he told the Egyptian pharaoh that she was his sister because Sarah was beautiful and he feared that they might kill him so they could have her. And then in chapter 20, he did the same thing with the king Abimelech, presumably for the same reason. Abraham, you see, was a slow learner. It got him in trouble with the Pharaoh the first time, not to mention how Sarah might have felt about it. But for some reason, that didn't prevent him from making the same mistake twice. So, to think that Isaac could replicate the sin of his father so exactly, almost beggars belief. But here it is, chapter 26, verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, "'She is my sister.'" Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife, he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. And the text emphasises the similarity by even using the same language as was used earlier in Genesis. And that's true of Abimelech's reaction as well. The language here is very similar to the language back in chapter 20. But look at verse 8 here. It says, when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. See, in this respect, we're dealing with a case of like father, like son. 
Isaac is like Abraham in his stupidity. In this sense, Isaac bears the family likeness. Sin. Isaac walks in the sinful footsteps of his father Abraham and it's a depressing case of history repeating itself. But I hope you notice that despite his stupidity, Isaac was kept safe. Abimelech ensures his protection and the protection of his wife, Rebekah. And in the very next verse, we read this, verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. Combination of what we've just read with this verse and what follows is incredibly jarring. We're meant to feel the shock here. We should be expecting God to punish Isaac. But instead, God blessed Isaac. Why? What has he done to deserve God's kindness and favour? Why on earth would he bless this man? Wouldn't God be better off dishing out a stern rebuke, if not some more serious discipline? Blessing? Really? Well, yes. And in fact, the rest of chapter 26 is devoted to telling us how well looked after Isaac was. He had so many flocks and herds that the Philistines grew envious of him and asked him to leave their region which he did, but he continues to prosper to such a degree that Abimelech ends up coming back to him to make a treaty with him. The Philistines were fearful that Isaac would grow so powerful that he'd become a threat to them. So great was his blessing. And listen to the astonishing way that Abimelech expresses this himself in verse, from verse 28. It says, uh, they answered, this is Abimelech and his uh, officials, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you, so we said there ought to be a sworn agreement between us between us and you, let us make a treaty with you so that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. So even Abimelech, the foreign king, recognises the hand of the Lord's blessing. And all this is basically because of the staggering promise that God made to Abraham. All the events of this chapter take place in the context of the way the chapter began. Let me remind you, back to chapter 26, verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. God had promised to Abraham the land of Canaan in which the Philistines live. He promised that his descendants would become a great nation, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that he would pour out on them so much blessing that it would overflow to all the nations of the earth. That promise was first articulated back in chapter 12, just before Abraham first tried to convince people that Sarah was his sister. And similarly here, God reminds Isaac of this promise just before he repeats his father's stupidity. And it's a reminder to us that the promise does not depend upon the righteousness of its recipients. It depends upon the righteousness of the God who makes it. This promise does not depend upon the righteousness of the recipients, but upon the righteousness of the God who makes it. 
And that is why Isaac finds himself enjoying his father's blessing, even though he has imitated his father's sin. And God appears to Isaac to reiterate this again in the second half of the chapter. So look at verse 23. From there he went up to Beersheba. And that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And again, what's really significant about that is that God appeared to him at Beersheba, we're told. That little detail is designed to show us the similarities again between Isaac and Abraham because Beersheba was the place where Abraham made a treaty with Abimelech just as Isaac does here. And the author of Genesis wants to keep reminding us of these similarities, these parallels. He wants us to see that the path of Isaac's life was very similar to the path that his father Abraham trod. He wants us to think like father, like son. Because the great paradox of Abraham's life has become the great paradox of Isaac's. And that paradox is that the God who has uniquely pledged himself to this family is determined to bless them though they be foolish sinners. The God who has made staggering promises to this family knows the people he has promised these things to. He knows how stupid they can be. Yet he promises these great things to them and these promises stand and they enjoy his blessings despite their sin. Well, having painted that picture for us, the writer of Genesis then reintroduces Isaac's sons into the story. Interestingly, in the first place, they come back at the very end of chapter 26. So just let me read from verse 34. It says, just incidentally almost, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, certainly in the, in the context of the whole Old Testament story, Esau's polygamy and his marriage to Canaanite women will both be seen as big mistakes. But the significant thing here is that Esau and his wives were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And I think we're probably told that so that we won't be tempted to feel too much sympathy for Isaac in what follows. We learnt back in chapter 25 that Esau was Isaac's favoured son. And we see more of that in chapter 27. But we're told here that he perhaps favoured this son without good reason. He favoured the son who brought him grief. And chapter 27, of course, tells the tragic story of how Rebekah and Jacob conspired together to steal away the blessing that Isaac intended for Esau. I'm not going to retell the story. We've just read it and, and I think it's reasonably well known. It's at times... Sinister, it's at times almost comical, and the conclusion is bitter, to say the least. But, but let me point out a couple of things that I think are worth reflecting on, because again, I think what we're meant to see here is the family likeness. But this time, not so much like father, like son, but more like son, like father. Let me explain what I mean. In the first place, I hope you noticed how much Isaac is driven by his appetites. Listen to what he says to Esau at the start of the chapter. Verse 2, Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. 
See, the intention of bless Esau is despite the prophecy that was made about the two boys back in chapter 25, and it's despite the fact that Esau has sold his birthright to Jacob back in chapter 25 as well. We saw that last night. Now it's possible that Isaac didn't know either of those things. The text doesn't tell us that he did, but that seems very, very unlikely. What's more probable is that he knew God had chosen Jacob and he knew about Esau's foolishness, but that he chose to disregard them instead. And perhaps he chose to disregard them because he was hankering so badly for some of Esau's food. As verse 4 says, for that tasty food that he liked. It's possible that his appetite had impaired his judgment. And the same seems true when Jacob comes to him dressed up like Esau and bringing the food Rebekah had prepared. It's obvious that Isaac can smell a rat. You know, verse 20 says, uh, How did you find it so quickly, my son? Oh, the Lord your God gave me success, he replied. He knows something isn't right. Verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. See, despite the fact that Jacob's deception was less than perfect, to say the least, Isaac went ahead and blessed Jacob. He refused to believe that he was being deceived, despite what his brain told him about how long it takes to hunt and cook. And despite what his ears told him about the difference in the voices of his sons. And you can't help but wonder if Rebecca banked on the success of this ruse because she was counting on Isaac's weakness. It's possible she knew that Isaac's appetite was likely to impair his judgment. Rebecca may be a conniving and manipulative woman who is hardly a model of the faithful, loving wife. But Isaac doesn't come across looking too noble in this chapter either. And I hope you can see what I've been implying. Because if we ask ourselves what motivates Isaac in this chapter to resolve to bless Esau in the first place and then secondly to actually bless Jacob, the answer seems to be food. He seems to be compelled into foolishness, in part at least, by his appetite for what he wants to eat. Sound familiar? Does that remind you of anyone? It's not rocket science to see the parallels between this incident and the incident at the end of chapter 25. Sounds familiar because it's exactly the same mistake Esau made. Esau, you remember, sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. He was so hungry after coming in from the fields and so strong was his appetite that he relinquished his privileges as the firstborn son to get a bowl of what Jacob had made. And Isaac, you see, is like his son. There's a family resemblance here, like son, like father. It's one thing to replicate the stupidity of your father, but it's another thing to replicate the weakness and the foolishness of your son. Isaac and Esau seem to have this in common. But I think, Isaac, I think chapter 27 points to similarities between Isaac and Jacob too. And in the first place, they both succumb to the temptation to deceive. In chapter 26, Isaac asks his wife to pretend she's someone she isn't. He deceives Abimelech. And here in chapter 27, Rebekah convinces Jacob to pretend that he's someone he's not and he deceives his own father. Isaac and Jacob too are alike in sin. But they are also alike in blessing. Just as Isaac was like his father in sin and blessing, so too Jacob 
is like his father in sin and blessing, for it is through him and not Esau that God has promised to bless Abraham's descendants. Despite Isaac's resolve to bless Esau instead, he ends up blessing Jacob. He pronounces over him a prophetic word for the future. It was a common practice in those days. So the language of blessing that applied to Isaac in chapter 26 is applied to his son here in verse 23. Chapter 27, verse 23. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Verse 27. He went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and he said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. And of course, the blessing Isaac unknowingly pronounced over Jacob echoes the words of God's promise to Abraham and echoes the words of God's prophecy about Jacob before he was even born. Chapter 25, verse 23. Despite the fact that Isaac had hoped to bestow his blessing upon his elder son, God had said that it would come to the younger of the two sons. And so it proved to be. God's sovereign will, as it always does, prevailed. And of course, he's really the main character of this story. Not Isaac, not Jacob and Esau. God. It's his story. It's the story of his world and his people and the unfolding history that takes place as he designs. And amazingly, it's a story of how he pours out his blessing. It's not a story of how he moves pieces around the chessboard of the world for his own benefit and pleasure. It's a story of how he orchestrates the hours and the days in order to benefit the people that he loves. It's amazing, isn't it? And as we see his sovereign hand guiding this particular portion of human history, we learn some things about him and we learn some things about his blessing. So I want to summarise those for you. In the first place, we are reminded that he is a God who pours out blessing despite sin. Sin is the family likeness for Abraham and his descendants. Abraham and Isaac both sought to deceive people into thinking their wives were their sisters. Isaac weakly preferred a tasty meal to running with his better judgment. And Jacob weakly followed his mother into deceiving his own father and robbing his brother of the blessing that was intended for him. And these are just the sins we know about and have mentioned in the last 20 minutes. Like father, like son. Like son, like father. And in the Bible, God chooses to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He calls himself that time and time again. We often think that means he's the God of the great Old Testament heroes of the faith, but that's because we haven't read Genesis carefully enough. What does he say about himself when he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob if he's not primarily saying, I am the God of sinners? I am the God who chooses to identify with sinners, to relate to sinners, to love sinners and to bless them. And given that the family likeness of Abraham's clan is also the family likeness of all humanity, given that 
all humanity inclined towards sin. And none of us can point a self-righteous finger at Abraham, Isaac or Jacob. Then, Then this comes as very, very good news. If you're a sinner and if you happen to discover that the God of the universe is the God of those sinners, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, then that's very good news indeed. See, back when I was talking about the jarring conflict between the first half and the second half of chapter 26, that jarring conflict between Isaac's stupidity and God's blessing of Isaac, I said, why on earth would God bless this man? And the sobering truth the Bible convinces me of is that the same could well be said of me. I may not have tried to pass my wife off as my sister, but I'm no less a sinner than Isaac. I'm no less foolish, no less stupid. So why on earth would God bless this man? Why indeed? Yet through the stunning mercy of the Lord Jesus, he does. And if you know the mercy of the Lord Jesus, then you are a a blessed sinner, just like Isaac and just like me. That's the first thing we learn here. Secondly, we learn that God pours out his blessing irrespective of striving. I'm using the word striving here to try and capture what Rebecca and Jacob are doing in these chapters. It was there in chapter 25 and it's all the more prominent here in chapter 27. Rebecca strives to make sure that Jacob, her favoured son, receives Isaac's blessing. And Jacob strives in the same direction. But one of the things I think these chapters demonstrate is that the great effort these to expend is profoundly unnecessary. Not only is it tragically sinful, it's also tragically unneeded. It was not necessary for them to stoop so low to achieve what they wanted. They did not need to reach so shamefully for what they hoped to gain. They didn't need to reach for it because God had determined to give it. In fact, God had promised to give it. So all their effort, all their exertion... All their striving was not only corrupt, it was also faithless. It was a failure of trust, trust in the God who will keep his promises and who will always bless those he has committed to bless. These chapters are a picture of how dumb it looks when people strive for that which God gives freely. Can you imagine for a moment if my car died, I couldn't afford to replace it? And a a generous friend heard of my need and had a second-hand car in his family. They didn't use that much. He came to me to tell me he wanted me to have it. It's a gift. But I want you to imagine I then argued with my friend about how much I should pay for it. He kept telling me that it was for nothing. And I kept saying I wanted to give him something for that. You know, we do that sort of stuff all the time, don't we? When, When I do that, I fail to properly appreciate my friend's generosity. And all my argumentativeness is an unnecessary striving because my friend loves me and he wants to bless me. Now, that's a very pale illustration in contrast to what's going on here, but I hope you get the point. It's dumb to exert yourself in the pursuit of that which comes freely. And when God blesses someone, it's never earned or deserved or paid for. It's a gift. And Jacob and Rebecca remind us how foolish it is to try and secure by your own effort what God has decided to grant by grace. He blesses irrespective of striving. And in so doing, he renders all striving useless. 
So if you're striving for God's blessing, if you feel you owe God something that must be paid, laboring under the misapprehension that you must work for this blessing, then stop it. Come to Jesus. He gives freely. And if you know people who are striving like that, and I suspect we all do, then you need to tell them they're wasting their time. Instead, they should come to Jesus. He gives freely. Thirdly, we learn again that the blessing of God in this this story is not to be despised. We're reminded in these chapters of how precious the blessing of God is. And for all their foolish striving, at least Rebecca and Jacob seem to appreciate the value of this blessing. And Isaac seems to know what it's worth too. And in chapter 27, even Esau seems to come to some sort of realisation of how much is at stake. So if you look at verse 34, it says, When Esau came back in and discovered what had happened, he heard his father's words. He burst out with a loud and bitter cry and he said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. And down in verse 38, Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. Esau can now see what it was that he so foolishly traded back in chapter 25 and what it is that he's now so tragically lost. But he sees too late. And that's the point the author of Hebrews makes in the verses we read last night from Hebrews chapter 12. Let me just remind you of those verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. The author writes, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 may be referring to Genesis chapter 25, but I think verse 17 is referring to Genesis chapter 27. It was too late for Esau to repent. It was too late for him to change his mind. What he now saw the value of was already lost to him. And that was because, as chapter 25 put it, he despised his birthright. And Hebrews was written basically to encourage Christians not to make that same mistake. Our inheritance in Christ, as we said last night, our blessing in him is so precious that we must never, never throw it away. Because if we treat it lightly and if we treasure other things more than relationship with Christ, and if we flirt with sin and grow to love sin, there may come a point where we found, like Esau found, that we have placed ourselves beyond repentance, beyond a change of mind. And though we might seek the blessing we once had with tears, though we might now see its true worth, it might be too late. And there's no greater tragedy in the universe than that. Genesis reminds us that what we have by God's gracious hand of blessing is not to be despised, but to be treasured more than we treasure life itself. And we ought to treasure it more than we treasure life itself because it's worth more than life itself. And what these chapters help us to appreciate, I think, is one of the reasons why. This is my fourth and final summary point. Part of the blessing that God pours out on us in Christ is the blessing of a new family likeness. 
grace that is despite us is also the grace that transforms us. By nature, of course, we're all addicted to sin. We're as stupid in our own ways as Isaac was and Abraham before him and Jacob and Esau after him. But when the Lord Jesus came, he came to rescue us from ourselves, came to rescue us not only from the Lord's wrath, but from the human family likeness. He came to deliver us from our addiction to sin. And when we place our trust in him, he begins to form in us the new family likeness. Because in him we become part of God's family and we begin to bear the likeness of our Father in heaven. That's why we read that passage from 1 John 3 before. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Being a child of God is not just a metaphor, John is saying. It's what those of us who know Jesus have really become. And God has lovingly lavished this blessing upon us. And part, part of that rich, rich blessing of belonging to him is that one day when we finally see him for who he is, we will be like him. We won't be like Abraham was and like Isaac was and like Jacob and Esau were, and we won't be like we once were. We'll be made new, along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We'll be made like our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be like God, our Father, released from sin once and for all. And I've got to tell you that as someone who continues to sin and who continues in my better moments to hate the sin that follows me and that I still fall into, I can't wait for that day. The grace that is despite me is the grace that transforms me. And while we wait, our gracious Lord Jesus works in us by his spirit towards that end. It's not just a future reality, but a present one. The end of 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul writes this, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the new family likeness. And it's a very great blessing that we who are in Christ are being transformed into that likeness more and more. Some days we'll be able to see it. On other days, I think it'll feel like we're going backwards. But God has made a promise. And that promise will not fail us. He who always keeps his promises will keep this one. And so we ought to trust him and cooperate with him and praise him for this blessing we don't deserve but which has nevertheless been poured out on sinners like us and really is more precious than life itself. The grace that is despite us is also the grace that transforms us because he really is the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and in Christ, your God and mine. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.
Let me give you a moment to reflect and then I'll lead us in prayer.